from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Drought spreads across the plains, scarring the winter wheat. We had some wheat that did, in severe cases, that did not germinate until January or February when there was a light snow. As winter wheat conditions nationwide are the worst on record. Tight cattle supplies are also taking cattle prices to new highs. As the planting pace picks up, we're keeping an eye on the potential for widespread frost and freeze next week. We want to watch it pretty closely because we don't have a good handle on how intense it is. A massive fire breaks out at a Texas dairy. What we know and the devastation left behind. And in John's world. Pigs, acorns and climate change. Now for the news, a huge loss to the dairy community outside of Lubbock, Texas. Our affiliate KVII reporting roughly 18,000 cows were killed in an explosion and fire at a dairy facility near Dimmit. The fire started Monday night at South Fork Dairy Farm. One woman was hospitalized with critical injuries. The Castro County Sheriff says she was an employee of the farm. The sheriff says the state fire marshal's office determined a piece of machinery caused the fire. He added there is speculation the fire may have started with a honey vac, a vacuum that sucks manure and water out of the barn. He says it's possible it overheated and methane may have ignited and caused the fire to spread. Officials also say it could have spread so quickly through the insulation. It's believed the facility employed between 50 to 60 people. Castro County is the second highest milk producing county in Texas. It has 15 dairies. Well, the cattle market hitting some significant milestones on both the cash and the futures, and it's really not of any surprise with the historic drought eating into overall cattle supplies this year. Cash cattle prices hit a record high last week of 173.10 for the five area weighted average steer, which exceeded the high set in 2014. Then this week, the April live cattle futures also took out the 2014 high. If we can take the cash market to the mid 180s this on this run, which I think it looks like we're going to, um, I, I, I do appreciate your point about the tightness of supply is not even here yet. Uh, the way I would read the tea leaves here, uh, the supply of cattle the first quarter of next year is much tighter than now. Uh, I'm making the assumption that there'll be enough moisture that will have heifer retention. Um, so yeah, it could get pretty crazy. Cattle market watchers say the key will be how fast the herd rebounds, which will be indicated by heifer retention. Because in 2014, the cycle was shorter than what we saw historically because of rapid expansion in the cattle herd. Well, inflation eased again last month, but recession fears are again heating up. The ease in inflation is thanks to less expensive gas and food. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reporting consumer prices rose 0.1% from February to March. That's the smallest increase since December. Compared to a year earlier, prices were up 5% in March. Food at home fell three-tenths of a percent, the first decline since September of 2020. Even with a little bit of positive news, the Federal Reserve saying this week that its staff economists have forecast a pullback in lending resulting from the banking turmoil that will cause a mild recession starting later this year. 
Ongoing weather struggles in Argentina right now are helping to bolster soybean prices here at home. USDA releasing its latest supply and demand report this week, making more cuts to Argentina's crop. That was in USDA's latest WASDI report this week, where USDA did cut Argentina's corn and soybean crop due to drought conditions. The corn crop was down another 3 million metric tons, close to what the trade expected. The soybean crop down 6 million metric tons. That was actually more than the trade expected. As for Brazil, it left corn unchanged and soybeans an even bigger crop, up 1 million metric tons. USDA also leaving U.S. ending stocks unchanged. Well, USDA says that the U.S. is now seeing record low winter wheat conditions. In the latest crop progress report USDA released Monday, they also gave a glimpse of planting, saying corn planting is now at 3%. That's one percentage point ahead of the five-year average. Cotton planting is at 6%. That's one percentage point behind average. And there wasn't much change to overall winter wheat conditions, but it shows that just 27% of the crop is rated good to excellent. That's historically low. Last week, it was 28%. Kansas continuing to suffer with 61% of the crop rated poor to very poor. Bayer says it plans to invest more than $65 million in one of its corn seed production facilities in Ukraine. The facility is located about two hours southwest of Kyiv. It says the investment will strengthen its crop science business in the country and help to rebuild the economy there. American philanthropist and farmer Howard Buffett is back in Ukraine. We've been following the foundation's efforts to help feed and rebuild that country. While there, he's teaming up with British entrepreneur Richard Branson to build Ukraine's first factory kitchen in Bucha. It will produce lunches for all the educational facilities in three nearby communities. It's estimated more than 10,000 hot meals will be cooked at the facility every day for children. The First Lady of Ukraine was on hand for the ceremony in regards to the announcement. Buffett has plans to build another similar factory in another region. That's it for the news. Well, planting has picked up pace, but frost and freeze potential next week may put a damper on some of that progress. We'll have a check of weather next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Tyrannus, committed to moving the acre forward. To drive more value from every acre, visit acreforward.com. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The new 6180 Power Spread Manure Spreader from H&S is the heaviest built spreader in its size. This 800 bushel manure spreader includes a monoblock gearbox and rubber tongue suspension. Find out more at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather with Matt Engelbrecht. Matt, 80s and 90s hitting the upper Midwest this week with a record amount of snow in those areas. Now we're keeping an eye on potential prolonged flooding. Yeah, Tanya, that's exactly right. Yeah, you got uh, the temperatures above average through the Midwest with that snowpack that's already down there. I don't think we're going to have a problem uh, with uh, soil moisture uh, the next couple of days and into next week. Now, being said, our focus is on warm air and the snow melting. What if I told you, Tyne? that the snow was coming back into the forecast. As we get into Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, a deepening low pressure system is going to pick up uh, some moisture and cold air. So we'll start this off uh, as we go through the weekend. You'll see uh, the color start to increase uh, and I laugh because we're coming off of record high temperatures this past week uh, into a situation where we could see a six to 
6 to 12 a foot of snowfall uh, into uh, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, and I should say very northern Illinois into Wisconsin. Just a few areas, 6 to uh, 12 inches of snowfall and then some snow coming down, but not really sticking into northern Indiana and Michigan. So we're not completely done with winter as we can continue to swing back and forth between the two extremes, whether it's extreme heat or snowfall. And now going into next week, we're going to revisit this next Thursday as well. The same kind of situation, the same question that was asked, what's going on with the uh, the temperatures and the snow melting above average temperatures once again as we go through the week across the United States. This has been pretty, I wouldn't say call it normal, but consistent back into the northwest with uh, low pressure systems and troughs digging and keeping uh, portions of California, Oregon, and Washington, and a little bit back here towards the east below average. That's going to continue into next week, and we're going to get back into a similar pattern that we had last week. So here's a look what we got with the jet stream. So starting this on Sunday, you know, the circle you see here, that's the energy that's going to draw down that cold air. And again, there's enough moisture out there for us to combine for some snow. Notice how this lifts to the northeast, which means on the northwest side is where that snow will come down. Again, impacts look to be pretty low because look what's behind it. You see these white lines take off to the north. Another ridge starts to build in and move across the United States with that exiting to the northeast. So I wouldn't call it necessarily a quiet pattern until Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We start to get a flattening of the jet stream, a little bit more zonal with that above average heat coming through parts of the Midwest and then also into the southeast. Thanks, Matt. And actually, at the end of the show, we'll talk more about the concerns for the frost and freeze and have a planting forecast for you. But first, flooding concerns also dampening acreage outlooks in some areas. So how is the market balancing that along with planting progress? We will have a check of your markets next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. A lot to talk about with the markets, a lot to digest. We have Tommy Grisafi joining us as well as Christy Van on Cheeseth. Christy, I'll, I'll start with you because as you look at, we did have some planting progress this week, yet some question marks about more wet weather hitting some of those areas already seen snowpack melt and, and flooding. Really, what is, is catching the attention of the market? Yeah, I think right now the problem is you have enough of both situations. You have areas that are having really good luck getting the crop in the ground, and they will continue to have good luck. The forecast looks to be open for a good chunk of places. But then you have your question on some other areas, like where we're at. You know, prior to this week here in Minnesota, tons of snow. The tree lines are still full of snow. You're still trying to melt it all in uh, into the Dakotas, and they have a chance for a lot of precipitation coming once again to Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota moving forward. I think the biggest question for this market is going to be what happens on week two forecast. The week two forecast is in disagreement between a couple different models right now. And once we get some clarification, I think the market can choose a direction. But right now, there's enough people that say, hey, we're not going to get what we need to get planted. And there's enough people saying we are seeing that progress that it's tugging on the markets and we're struggling to really point out a direction where we want to go. Well, and Tommy, I remember talking to you last year, last May, where, you know, farmers really struggled to get that crop in, but then boom, the weather switched and they were in the field. It was go time and it was amazing how much got planted. But as you look at right now, you talk to some of your clients in that North Dakota area, you know, how much possibly prevent plan are, are, are we looking at? Well, it's a little early. So we're approaching tax day. Uh, a better panic day would be, uh, 
one month from now. And then once we get past the first PP date, you, you, what we're all aware of, your viewers, us as uh, analysts and whatnot, is we're 550 D's corn on our way to maybe 550 D's corn. Last year at this time, we were $7 D's corn on our way to $8 D's corn. So those bushels, when Don Wick and I did that little boots on the ground crop tour, when we were with farmers in Arthur, North Dakota, planting on June 6th, they were planting 80-day corn, hoping and praying that they had a nice fall. And they did. But that's not always normal in North Dakota. So for how expensive this crop is, is, is the northern plains, North Dakota, Minnesota, South Dakota, up in Canada, are they willing to put the highest price crop they've ever planted into the ground very late? And a lot of things have to go right for that to go well. So if we get into to what Christine yourself said, if we get these rains, we have about three good weeks at the end of May, beginning of May, end of May to put this crop in. If we get into June days and it's raining, they're going to pull the plug and then maybe throw in beans or something. But it, the math of it doesn't look good. Not only time for corn, but we planted ABC last year, everything but corn. We planted canola. We planted sunflowers. We planted crops that people didn't even know we grew up there because the price of everything was expensive. And the price of those everythings, edible beans and everything, have calmed down. Barley has calmed down tremendously. So there's not as much motivation to uh, put in a crop and it not go well. And financially, it could be a disaster. Yeah. So Christy, Tommy mentioned some of those prices. As you look at some of those support lines, some of those price levels, uh, you know, what, what are the key levels that we need to watch? Yeah, right now we're focusing in on this 550 level for December corn. It's a level that needs to hold. You look at recent lows just below it. And so that's going to be a watch point for us to say, hey, can we stabilize here? We know we generated a good crop insurance price, but that only covers so much when you look at it. And then looking really at that $13 level for soybeans, we've came down and tested it multiple times and it just seems to be holding pretty strong. So we're going to trust that level. When you look at spring wheat, that's a whole different story. You know, you want to try and talk spring wheat with farmers right now, and it's the last thing they want to talk about. Profitability is not there. The outlook for planting, it's not there. And like you said, last year, they did have a really, really late spring, and they took a gamble on it, put it in because spring, white, spring wheat was so high priced. And you know what? It actually worked out for them. They had great yields when you look at spring wheat. Uh, but this year is a little bit different. The profitability is not so much there. And I think you're going to look at a, a producer saying, where is the profitability? Where am I going to start? And I think you're going to see them start on that corn, see what they can get in for corn. We also have to remember for the Dakotas, uh, they changed their ruling as far as prevent plants when you can graze it. And that's played a big role in encouraging people to utilize prevent plant and use that rule to say, hey, if I have cattle or I have a neighbor that has cattle, instead of mudding in this crop, I can take prevent plants and then rent it out or utilize it for myself. And that's been a big benefit to those that are able to use that. So I would imagine you see some of those acreage being utilized in that way. Wheat crop conditions all the way to record cattle prices this week. A lot still to talk about. We'll do that coming up later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, if you had ham last weekend for Easter, you may have enjoyed several ham sandwiches with those leftovers this week. But in Spain, a special kind of ham is seeing a rapid loss of production. John Phipps has details in John's World. In one of the very localized but painful consequences of climate change, some Spanish pork producers are facing a possibly industry-ending catastrophe. 
Four regions of Spain are the certified origins of a fabled product, Jamón Ibérico de Bellota, an astronomically expensive ham made from only certain pigs in a certain way in a certain locations. The 17-year-old single malt whiskey of ham, if you will. To earn the label and the fabulous prices, producers have to use only Blackfoot pigs and finish them for the last month on acorns, bellotas, from the Dejasa, a particular type of oak forest. The hams are cured for two to four years. The rules go on and on in exquisite detail, but those are the main regulations for certification. But with that label, you can sell those hams for frankly shocking prices. With those kinds of numbers, Hamon Iberico is judged and rated like fine wines with tastings and competitions. Displayed and sold in a dedicated ham rack, it is usually served sliced paper thin with a special knife, which certainly makes economic sense. Last year, the hormone producing regions experienced extreme drought and heat, and annual rainfall has been falling for the last 35 years, declining rather. Fewer acorns were one result, which meant fewer pigs grazing them. While some producers imported acorns from northern Africa and other regions, that is problematic. Not only do Hamon purists question the practice, although the rules do allow it, the risk of importing unknown biological agents alarms others concerned about the already stressed dehasas. These world-famous hams have been an important part of local rural industry for centuries. The region's farmers now have fewer alternatives so along with a plummeting birth rate and development pressure, it's not hard to envision drastically lower farmer numbers in these parts of Spain. I have visited Spain, and I have tasted, I think, Jamón Iberico or something similar. My recollection is it is very salty and strongly flavored. I wouldn't put it on a ham and Swiss sandwich, for example. But that's my problem, and customers around the world will probably bidding, be bidding the price of the declining Jamón Iberico inventories even higher. Supply and demand. Thanks, John. And if you have questions or comments, then I know many of you will for John, you can email those to mailbag at usfarmreport.com. Okay, when we come back, a very unique tractor that we uncovered in Oklahoma. Machinery Pete has tractor tails next. Your next piece of equipment is on machinerypeat.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on machinerypeat.com. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, special tractor for you, a 1955 Bantam from the Shawnee Tractor and Engine Club in Oklahoma. This is a 1955 Bantam made in Illinois. Uh, I picked it up about uh, 15 years ago out of South Dakota. I had about eight Panzers, and uh, the guy was selling some, and he told me about the one here that he had it in South Dakota. And so I went up and picked it up, and I had a ball with it since. When I got up there, he had a, a, a big Bantam, the, the red ones, tricycle one, and he did gave it to me to get, to get cause a, a buddy was storing it for him. So I ended up with two tractors instead of, instead of one. I do parades, I do uh, uh, tractor shows, and I got, I got started just helping out 
And then my wife said, if you're going to run with the boys, you need to join the club. So I joined the club, and uh, I, I hadn't looked back since. It was ready to go when I bought it. We painted it once since I, I got it. But besides that, it's got the original engine on it. It's a five-horse Britain tracking engine. It's got high, low, and reverse. And you don't use regular oil. You put handgun grease in it for the transmission. This one here was made for You could pull a three-gain reel more behind it. An air air, a packer, anything to do yard work with. The pegs on the front are for your stabilizer for your snow blade. I like to refer to it as a, as a back in the fifth year, a wristband tr uh, garden tractor. And uh, the front, the front end there where the bantam, where the bantam is, it's solid cast iron. I mean, it, it's heavy. I can steal the show with this one here. <laughs> And if you have a tractor that you would like to submit, you can do that at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. Well, USDA's report this week shows the winter wheat crop is in historically bad shape. Up next, we're walking through the fields of Kansas to see firsthand the conditions creating intense worries about winter wheat. That's our Farm Journal report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, the drought situation across much of the plains has not improved this year. And farmers across a state that typically accounts for a quarter of the winter wheat production in the U.S., they're now staring at a bleak picture as winter wheat worries continue to grow. We are ready to plant, but because it's so dry, uh, we have not. Doug Kiesling is playing the waiting game with his farm ground this year near Lyons, Kansas. In central Kansas, it's been pretty dry. The latest U.S. drought monitor shows 43% of the state is seeing the most severe level of drought as dry conditions are variable across the state. It's amazing if you go 30 miles east of me, uh, it's, it's wetter than it is here, obviously. Um, but as you go from here towards southwest Kansas, uh, it's as about as dry here as it is in southwest Kansas, which what we're not used to. But it's been dry like this for almost a year. He says that variation is proof with this year's winter wheat. There was a lot of wheat that went in after uh, fall crops, like after corn or soybeans, that did not germinate until later in the winter because it was so dry. Matter of fact, we had some wheat that did, in severe cases, that did not germinate until January or February when there was a light snow. USDA's crop progress report earlier this week shows more than a third of Kansas's winter wheat crop is rated in very poor condition. Nearly another third is rated poor. Kansas Wheat Commission says wheat growers across much of the state are worried about their wheat crop. The wheat is a pretty resilient crop, so it can hold on in some dry conditions. But especially as you get closer to southwest Kansas, a lot of it just didn't emerge in the fall. And coming out of dormancy, it needs some moisture to start growing again, and it's just not receiving any of that moisture that it needs. The Wheat Quality Council will hold its annual wheat tour across Kansas in mid-May, a time when more mature wheat will give a better estimate of the quality and quantity of this year's crop. I think as we get farther to the west, end up in Colby that first night, and then that second day where we go from Colby to Wichita through southwest Kansas, we're really going to see some some tough conditions and some abandoned fields. Nationally, the crop progress report showed 27 percent of the country's winter wheat crop is rated good to excellent. This is probably one of our you know weakest crop progress reports for conditions uh, in 40 years. Uh, I mean, this is this is tied with 1996 in some states. 
1996 was a pretty poor year uh, for wheat producers. University of Missouri Extension economist Ben Brown says the eastern half of the country is seeing strong wheat conditions, with more farmers in states like Illinois, Ohio, and Michigan potentially taking that crop to harvest. On the other side of the scale, I wouldn't be surprised to see some pretty strong abandonment in places like the Panhandle of Texas, Oklahoma, and Southwest Kansas. Kiesling isn't sure just how much of his crop will need to be abandoned, as he says it's just too early to know. But across the state, severe drought-stricken fields aren't showing much promise. I think there's no question there's going to be some abandonment, um, probably higher than, than a lot of years because that wheat just isn't up and it's not growing. What makes that reality so hard is the current price of wheat, even if some question if today's prices truly reflect how bad this winter wheat crop really is. You know, there's understanding that yes, we're dealing with, you know, less room to, to air here, if you will, but we've still got a pretty healthy, you know, global wheat picture, uh, even with some of these challenges here in the United States and then certainly with the continued challenges in the Black Sea region. The future of the Black Sea Grain Initiative is currently very murky. The Russian Ag Minister says the Russia won't renew the grain deal until the West's sanctions on Russian food and fertilizer are lifted. But there's also conflicting reports on if the latest grain deal extension was for 60 or 120 days. Every time we've seen this kind of come around in these flares, that it doesn't look like the grain deal is getting renewed. We've seen a 25 to 50 cent rally in the wheat market, and, and that's just kind of the nature of the game right now. Dan Bossi of Ag Resource Company says intense challenges in Ukraine are dimming the outlook for their upcoming crops. The Ukrainians are struggling mightily, as you can imagine. Uh, they, they can't find fertilizers. Seed supplies are several years old. The price of diesel is now up to $34 a gallon. Imagine farming with that. And so, you know, numbers will be coming down. This year's Ukrainian crop export program will be well below last year. And he says as Russia works to gain control of its domestic grain export program, it could be Russian farmers who suffer. We still believe he'll be able to get some technology from Syngenta and maybe Bayer and some others on the seed side. But longer term, I think there's going to be a drag in production out of the Black Sea in general. As Kansas farmers work to provide the wheat needed for the rest of the world, Kiesling says the reality is tough. But the drought hasn't completely wiped out hope of producing at least some type of crop this year. Farmers as a whole have a lot of faith that there will be rain. And so I'm trying to be as optimistic as I can, even though sometimes some of these conditions behind us don't always look it. Uh, we have faith that uh, we will get rain. Well, we'll dig into wheat prices a little more during our roundtables next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Brandt technology-driven nutrition that feeds your crop. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, Tommy, we just had boots in the field looking at the wheat crop in the Plains area, Kansas specifically, really looking at, at, at poor crop conditions. As you look across the country, though, some farmers frustrated that we haven't seen wheat prices really react to some of those crop conditions. Why do you think that is? Well, we grow wheat everywhere and people know this and there's no new news out there. When I was at Commodity Classic with you and others, we had so many farmers come up the advanced trading booth and say, oh, it's really horrible where we are. And once you guys in Chicago figure that out, we're going to rally or there is no Chicago. There is no the, the, the money controlling these markets isn't in Chicago. It's all over the world and money's flowing in and out of commodities. And right now the funds just have to pedal down on the border trade wheat crop on the border trade wheat contract and the spread between border trade and KC that 
that is proving that the KC wheat crop is in trouble. There's a reason that it's almost $2 higher than the board. Just to think that in the next few days, hours, or months, as you watch this show, that Board of Trade wheat's getting ready to trade under corn. I don't know if it will. If it does, it'll create a lot of pain for people who are spreading long wheat, short corn. So wheat is never an easy item to trade. Of all the things I trade at the Board of Trade in the pits, I tried to stay out of the wheat pits. Those guys made money. When they make money, they make big money and it trends. When they lose money, they lose big money. Not only as a wheat trader, but as a wheat farmer. And the best time to sell wheat this year's wheat was last year. Nobody wanted to do that because all the spreads were inverted. So if wheat was $14 and you could have sold 12 or $11 wheat is now the time to panic. The opportunities were there. And as people let them go by, look at 23 wheat, 24 wheat, 25 wheat. The market outlook over the long term does not look good for any of the commodity markets. Best prices are right now, and they continually get worse as we look down the curve time. Well, Christy, we did have that USDA uh, WASDE report. When you look at grain stocks, there weren't a lot of, you know, there weren't any really big surprises. But Christy, anything out of there that you can pull out off that, pull out that may change the trajectory of, of the prices that we're seeing right now? Yeah, when you look at stocks report, I think the number one thing to see is just the sheer amount of wheat being held by farmers right now. And I think that is where we got into this predicament is that everyone was so bullish wheat and wanted to be part of it and looked at the news and saw everything with Russia and Ukraine, saw the poor conditions, saw how late it was planted. And everyone got really, really bullish and that caused them not to sell and not to sell this last year or any deferred contracts. And then now we're sitting on all this wheat. We have way more winter wheat planted than we know what to do with. And we know it's in poor conditions, but the problem is we're still dealing with the fact that in January, we got way more wheat acres planted in winter wheat. And we sat there and said, we have 30% more wheat on hand for a farmer to sell yet to finish this year off. And we know that some producers will carry wheat for multiple years, but you still realize that there's a lot that has to go through the pipeline yet before we get to this next crop report or this next crop year. And then you're also looking at the fact that, you know what, these prices aren't great, but basis levels aren't that all that fantastic when you look at spring wheat right now. They're very soft unless you can get to a mill. And that's just proving to, yeah, we can have a production problem, but if the demand's not there, there's nothing you're going to do about it. Tommy, you know, we've been talking about the possibility of a re recession for more than a year. Fed notes this week indicated that the banking crisis could uh, lead to a recession and the Fed acknowledging that, you know, has that spooked any of the markets? Yeah, it's really hard to say the word recession with unemployment that has a three in front of it. It's really hard to say recession where every uh, fast food restaurant or any restaurant uh, has help wanted signs. And so this is, there's no... Uh, last time it did it, it did this. There's never been a, a pandemic with uh, Russia invading Ukraine, with the United States government giving away $4 trillion pretty much to anybody who had a heartbeat to, hey, the uh, the deal's this time. The Fed started the fire. They gave everyone the money. And the quote I heard today was the arsonist started the fire and they now showed up to try to put it out. And it may not end well. We're going through a paradigm shift in interest rates, and you have to have some gray hair just to understand this stuff. It's been a long time since I traded interest rates at this level and that they were this volatile time. 
Christy, you know, cattle markets, that's one that we know typically, uh, you know, can react to, to recessionary fears. But you look at the, the supply situation today, the cash market leading us to, to record prices in cattle. You know, those those fundamentals, though, will they're, they're not going to change. So what is your outlook when it comes to these cattle prices? Yeah, you're exactly right. The fundamentals behind cattle are extremely, extremely friendly. And so that's kind of this backbone of saying fundamentals are friendly. We know inventory is down. We know cash prices uh, continuing to be extremely strong, especially in the north. But you kind of look at it and you say, hey, there are those concerns about domestic demand for these products moving forward with the recession talks, the talk of, you know, dwindling money supply in the U.S., but we've got to look at it in multiple ways and it's going to be this tug where it's fundamentals against technicals and right now uh, fundamentals are winning but we hit rare fourth price counts here for live cattle we're at the third price counts for feeder cattle and it's really hard for a market to accelerate past that fourth price count it's not saying it cannot do that but it needs to take a little bit more behind it to be able to do that christy tommy thank you so much for joining us we appreciate it we need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on us farm report if you've ever owned cattle, you probably have a few that stick out in your mind as your favorites over the years. And for one dairy farmer in England, his cow is more of a pet and her sweet nature is now going viral. Do you hate getting up in the morning? So does Doris. All the cows at Reed's Farm on the Isle of Wight in England got up and left for milking. Except for Doris. Doris is actually pretending to be asleep. And for faking sleep, Doris has gone viral. People relate. I am Doris was a typical comment. Oh, Doris. Doris has got a fantastic personality. She is definitely more person than cow. She's one of John Brody's favorites. You're a mischief maker. Leave my coffee alone, please. When Doris pretended to be asleep, John called her out. Doris, come on. See your ears moving. Come on, I can see your eye. Yeah. How'd he know she was faking? Around 30 seconds beforehand, she had her head up and was looking straight at me. She put her head back down, thinking that she was going to get away with it just to push her luck, be cheeky. Now Doris has fans online. I think I've found my spirit animal. Leave Doris alone. But Doris doesn't leave John alone. And why was she licking the back of your head? Um, grooming. She's grooming me. It means, as far as I'm concerned, she's a, she accepts me as a member of the herd. She grooms him. He grooms her. This is all over your face. Genimos, CNN, New York. Yep. I can see why Doris has become so adored across the internet. Thanks for that. Well, questions about the safety of food products imported into the U.S. That is the topic of customer support next. Well, as the U.S. relies on certain foods to be imported into the U.S., how do federal officials make sure that the food is safe? That's customer support this week. Mark Lennertz from Elko, Minnesota, asks about imported food safety. My concern is not about food produced in the U.S., but food imported from other countries. Many South American countries use chemicals that have been banned in the U.S. Should consumers be concerned about carryover chemicals on foreign imports? The same question could be asked about meat imports. Good question. 
Food safety is an enormous topic. The U.S. has a massive government effort involving no fewer than 12 agencies to monitor the safety of our food, both domestic and imported. As far as banned pesticides, both sources, domestic and foreign, can have tiny amounts of chemical residues. These residues are tested annually and reported by the AMS. In 2021, over 99% of the samples tested had residues below the tolerances established by the EPA, with 24% having no detectable residue. Residues exceeding the tolerance were detected in 0.53% fit for samples of the total samples tested, 10,127. Of these 54 samples, 29 were domestic, 24 were imported, and one was unknown. Residue does not mean contaminations, and those EPA limits they talked about are very conservative. The other health threat is biologic contamination, virtually all from three sources, salmonella, wisteria, and E. coli. This chart shows imported food violations over 18 years for these sources, virtually all of which could have been eliminated by proper handling and preparation. In fact, the last major imported pathogen outbreak was Mexican cucumbers in 2015, which sickened 900 and caused one death. The average of about 1,200 foreign incidents per year is far less than domestic cases. The bottom line for me is three rules. One, wash your produce and your hands thoroughly. Two, cook your meat. Use a thermometer. They're cheap and easy. And three, buy no more than two bananas at a time. And here's why. When I was in fourth grade, I read a story in the Weekly Reader about tarantulas in bananas. It turns out it probably wasn't a tarantula, but a giant Brazilian wandering spider, which can grow to seven inches wide. Here's one found last year in a German grocery store. We all have unreasonable fears. Arachnophobia is just one of mine. Thanks, John. Well, the potential of frost, freeze, and flooding. We'll look at the planting forecast coming up next. U.S. Farm Report Farm Country Forecast is brought to you by Calhoun Superstructure, engineered fabric buildings serving the agriculture and fertilizer industries for over 30 years. Visit calhounsuperstructure.com ag. That's calhounsuperstructure.com slash AG. Well, a massive warm-up hit areas of the country this week, including parts of South Dakota that were buried in snow just days ago. So what will conditions be like as we head into May? We asked Drew Lerner of World Weather that question this weekend for your From the Farm forecast. Well, we're actually going to be uh, bouncing around quite a bit as we go forward through this next, uh, you know, actually two weeks uh, we are not going to get back to 90s in South Dakota again, if not for a while, I don't think. Lerner thinks temps will bounce all over, moving from the 70s and 80s that they saw this week down to frost and freeze levels a couple times before April is over. But it's not clear just how much of the country could see that cold later next week. We want to watch it pretty closely because we don't have a good handle on how intense it is. And we do have a lot of wheat that's moving along fairly quickly. And we already damaged corn in the lower delta in February from the last time this pattern showed up. 
So we could do more damage now because more of the crop is advanced, of course. The one that comes later next week into the second weekend of the outlook would be the one that we want to watch most closely. As areas of the upper Midwest and northern plains saw the snow melt this week, it's also now creating high flood risks for the Red River Valley. And Lerner says more moisture could be on the way next week. And what we had on the ground was running from about four to eight inches with some spots up to 10 inches. So we've put that much moisture on top of the ground in these last few days and will continue to do so. And you add another inch of rain on top of that, you got a really interesting scenario. Lerner says he is concerned about the possibility of a wetter bias returning to the upper Midwest and Plains later this month and into May. So uh, I am concerned uh, that we may have some prevent plant. It's still a little early. Uh, you know, if we get back into the 90s like we were earlier this week in South Dakota, we can make a huge difference in a short period of time. But I think that's pretty much a big reach. Another area dealing with wet weather is the Delta and Mid-South, an area that needs to get crops planted by mid-May to beat the intense summer heat. And Lerner says he does have some good news for those areas. The southeastern states should see drier biased weather uh, because we'll have a little ridge of high pressure building in there in the last days of April and more likely in May. And it will uh, eventually uh, expand northward and then shift to the west. So for a, a few weeks, we, or at least a couple of good solid weeks, we ought to have much drier biased conditions. But we've got to get through some more rain before that happens. And like you said, we're already pretty late in a lot of areas there. And it could get a lot more serious with the additional moisture coming up. Thanks, Drew. And he does actually think some of that cold weather could create some systems that, that hit parts of Texas, but he doubts it makes it as far north as, as some of the plains, the Texas Panhandle, some of those areas. All right, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us again right here next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.